0: This is the Building Resilience Podcast, episode 116 the top seven things I do to stay anchored and grow my zone of resilience. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, where you will learn all about building resilience in yourself and helping others build it too. Drawing from the principles of positive psychology, neuroscience, and coaching, I will help you face all the challenges and adversities that life throws at you and help you do more than just survive. I will help you thrive. I am your host, Leah Davidson, and I am a certified life coach and speech-language pathologist. I will help you manage your mind, your emotions, deal with your stress and your overwhelm, and lead a more purposeful and joyful life. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Resilience Podcast. I am so happy to have you here Now, a couple of weeks back, I introduced you to a framework that I use with my clients to help them understand the nervous system. Now, it's just one framework. There are many other frameworks out there, and it is episode 110 called The Zone of Resilience. And it's based on the window of tolerance framework that is the work of Dan Siegel. Now, there are several other frameworks that I use too, and I'll share them with you along the way, but I do try to give my clients a bit of choice to see what resonates with them because people resonate with different things. Now, the premise of all these frameworks is kind of the same. They're all looking at the nervous system, and they're all looking at the different states that the nervous system goes through. And one theory that has become a very popular theory and one that resonates well with me is called the polyvagal theory. And I'll definitely have to do a separate podcast about it because it really has changed the way that many people are understanding mental health. But in a nutshell, it's a theory that's founded by Stephen Porges, and it focuses on what is happening in the body and the nervous system. And it explains our sense of safety, danger, or life threat, and how that can impact our behavior. Now, it hypothesizes that there are three distinct neural pathways in the nervous system. There's a sympathetic system. So this is the hyper arousal. Or if you look at my window of tolerance zone of resilience framework, it's that top zone that I talk about, that hyper state. And then there is a parasympathetic pathway, and that is known as the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve actually has two branches, one that is safe and social. So really, that's the middle zone, the zone of resilience that I talk about. And the other branch is considered a shutdown branch. So that is the hypo zone, the bottom of the three zones that I shared on that episode about the zone of resilience. Now, there's another excellent researcher and clinician called Deb Dana, and she has taken the polyvagal theory, which straight up is a bit dense and hard to digest, and she's made it really digestible, very relatable, really applicable when working with clients. And she uses another great metaphor called the polyvagal ladder, which really speaks to the hierarchy that these pathways follow. So remember how I said you start in the zone of resilience and then you usually go up to the hyperarousal state when there is a threat. And then if the threat continues, you will drop down to that zone represented below of hypoarousal. Or you can go directly to hyperarousal if something is really life-threatening. Well, with Deb Dana's latter analogy, or the metaphor, is that the bottom rung is the hypoarousal state, and they call this the dorsal vagal, or the shutdown state. It is a branch of the parasympathetic state, and it is an immobilized protective state. And then to the top rung, which is a safe and social state, or what is called the ventral vagal state in the polyvagal theory. It is the other sympathetic branch, but it is a connection state. So that is what I refer to as a zone of resilience, or what Dan Siegel refers to as that window of tolerance. So there are many great concepts and metaphors and explanations, which I think I'm just going to kind of drip them out. I've just been studying and learning about these theories for several years, taking, you know, a bunch of classes and courses and trainings and readings, applying them in my own life, applying them with clients. So I'll be sharing these concepts with you more and more, or essentially they are all the same concepts. We're just using different language and different metaphors and analogies to explain them. But I know that people resonate with different things, so that's why I want to share different things. So that was just a taste of another framework that you can use. Now, in the polyvagal theory, one of the main tenets of the theory, which is why I wanted to introduce it to you today, is that it gives us a scientific framework that supports the integration of physiological responses and strategies with the cognitive approaches. So let me explain that a bit, too. As I mentioned, the parasympathetic pathway runs along what is called the vagus nerve. Now think of this nerve as like a massive collection of nerves or a connection, a collection or a connection of nerves. It's comparable to the size of the spinal cord, actually. So it's pretty big and it's called the vagus nerve because it's a wandering nerve. It starts at the brainstem, sort of meanders through. It has series of connections to the face and the heart and the lungs. And then it continues to every organ and the gut. And the other cool thing about it is 20% of the fibers go from the brainstem down through the body, so top down, and 80% from the body back up to the brain. So I always like to say to my clients, it's like you have five highways in your body. One of them goes from the brain to the body, and four of them go from the body up to the brain. So it's really a massive feedback loop. And it's an important part of our nervous system and had a lot of attention over the years about how can we improve the tone of this vagus nerve, and would this help us in dealing with our stress levels? So without going into it too much deeper, it serves as the epicenter of the mind and body connection. It's the feedback. It's the communication. So there is that top-down processing, which is all that cognitive processing, but remember, only 20% of the fibers, only one superhighway goes that direction. And then bottom-up processing, which is 80%, so four of the superhighways coming up from the body to the brain. So that is why there is so much more emphasis now on working with our bodies, because that can be so much more effective. Now, of course, both are important, but certainly many are acknowledging that the body has a huge role in mental and emotional health, and that is because of this vagus nerve and this polyvagal theory. Now, back on episode 110, when we talked about widening your window or growing your zone of resilience or being able to flexibly move between the hyperstate and the hypostate, some of what I was referring to had to do with the things that you can do to work with your vagus nerve to improve its health, or what they call tone. Again, this really deserves a whole separate episode at the very least, but maybe eventually I'll get to it. And while I'm by no means an expert compared to many of the teachers I'm learning from, I'm always happy to share what I have learned and implemented and what works for me. All right, so that was a lot of heady theory stuff for you. So I hope you're still with me. I want to get back to some very practical strategies as the title of this podcast suggested I would be doing. So a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you some of the key pillars of physical and mental health, kind of the non-negotiables. And I want to go a step further and do an episode and share with you what some of my favorite ways are right now for me to work on widening my zone and staying in my zone of resilience that safe and social zone that the polyvagal theory talks about. It's that zone of connection. I want to share how I stay anchored here or get back to being anchored here, how I try to reinforce the anchors, because this is a place from which you want to live a lot of your life, where you want to make connections and learn and grow and communicate. So I really do want to invest in nourishing this zone. In fact, the very first step to befriending and understanding your nervous system is always to be coming from a place of safety. Regulation requires safety. So the first thing I work on with my clients is to get them to identify as many anchors in this safety zone as they can and spend as much time there as they can. Now, if you have spent many years in a hyper state or a hypo state, then actually the safety state may not actually feel very familiar to you and it may feel quite uncomfortable. So you're gonna wanna start slowly and start doing things just gradually in this zone, increasing the amount of time that you spend there, maybe even just a minute or so to start. I actually just did a workshop for my clients where I helped them create their own menu of things that they can do to help them get safely anchored in their zone of resilience so they can get comfortable in this zone like really anchored and safe and familiar. And then we also looked at ways that they can transition to and from the other zones. It really is a highly individualistic thing because we all have different nervous systems. But in the workshop, I offered to them lots of different options and choices that they can try out so they could create their own personalized menu. So that was a fun bonus for my clients. And it is really important for you to learn effective tools to help you befriend your nervous system. And honestly, it's a big part of what we do in coaching together. So if you're interested in learning more about that, then reach out and book a call with me. Now today, I do want to give you a few ideas of what I personally do to keep my zone wide and continue to widen it and build those anchors of safety and connection. Now, these are the things that also help me to complete that daily stress cycle, to blow off steam, almost like I'm reconnecting or resetting my nervous system, so to speak. Now, of course, these aren't the only things that I do, but I thought I would share with you some of my favorite ones and the ones that give me the biggest benefit, sort of the biggest bang for my buck, so to speak. And it might be of interest to you to stimulate some ideas of what you can do to anchor down and grow your zone of resilience. Now, before I dive into that, I do want to mention that we need our nervous system. We need all zones. The healthy nervous system that we want to aim for is one that responds appropriately to the kind of cues that it is getting. So it is appropriate that sometimes we are in a hyper state or a hypo state. But we do want to make sure we know where our home is, where we are anchored, where that safety is, and that we know the roots back to it. But we're not always going to be in that zone. That's not our goal. Our goal is to be able to move fluidly between the zones and know that connection takes place in this zone of resilience. All right. So let's review just quickly the basics that we talked about when we reviewed the pillars. And I want to emphasize how important the basics are, because these are kind of like the non-negotiables that you want to be working on to create a wide and safe zone. So the first one was sleeping, seven to nine hours. It is the foundation upon which everything is built. So you don't want to be skipping out on sleep. Nutrition was another one. It's so important to be getting all the proper nutrients and of course, proper hydration. Movement, getting in any kind of movement is crucial. And I do like to say movement rather than exercise because exercise can have a lot of negative connotations. And it doesn't have to be training for a marathon. Just get out there and go for a walk. Do some resistance training. Do some stretching. Sunlight was the next thing that we talked about. Get out every day, early morning, shortly after waking, five to 30 minutes, depending on how gray it is where you live. Get that sunlight. And then focus on connection. Start with connecting and building a relationship with yourself and then move on to building the relationship with others as well as building a relationship with a higher purpose or higher power. So these are all the basic things that are key. Just focusing on these will help you widen your zone, secure your anchor. So it's so, so, so simple. It's just not easy to do. Now, these things also help you complete the stress cycle to move that stress through your body, let that steam off, and you need to be doing that on a daily basis. Now let's dive into a few specific things that I like to do that are a little bit more personalized for me. Now the first one is something called non-sleep deep rest, and this is a term coined by Dr. Andrew Huberman, who is a professor and neuroscientist at Stanford. I am a huge Huberman fan. You've probably heard me quote him often on the podcast or elsewhere. I love him because everything that he says, he's done a ton of research on. He shares that research that other people have done to back it up. So he's not just talking about what's trendy. He's actually based on all the research and you can go back and even read it. So I love that. So I'm often referring to him. Now, he's actually introduced me to the importance of sunlight that I talked about earlier and is an advocate for some of the things that I'm going to share in a bit, but he specifically coined the term non-sleep deep rest. This is basically something that I had been doing for years. I just didn't call it that, and I didn't know like why it was so beneficial. I always referred to it as power naps, even though often I wasn't sleeping, but when I think back to my university days, when I was studying, I would study and then I'd always take these 10 to 15 power naps. As I used to say, I'm just going to rest my eyes. And then for many years, when I was on the road, if I got to a client's early, or if I had a break between clients, I would actually pull over, find a parking lot, lean my chair back and snooze for 10 or 15 minutes. And then ever since I've been working virtually at home, I actually have a yoga mat in my office with a pillow and a blanket. And again, if I have a short break, I will lie down and take this short power nap. Now, when all my kids were home during COVID, they used to laugh because sometimes they would come into my office and they'd find me resting on the mat and they'd take a picture and they'd put it in our family chat with the heading, like, oh, mom's working again. Now, I technically wasn't always sleeping, although sometimes I think I probably do drift off. What I was doing, according to Dr. Huberman, was non-sleep deep rest. So it's kind of like a shallow napping. It's a self-directed technique of resting your brain during the day to achieve like calm through mental focus. Now, it's proven to increase your ability to learn, to reduce stress, to feel calmer, and to fall asleep more easily. So my interpretation of how I do it is I just allow myself to close my eyes and relax my body which in turn slows your brain down. So you aren't actively trying to control your brain. You're not trying to force it to do anything. But this state of relaxation of your body has amazing benefits for your brain. Now, there are actually non-sleep deep rest protocols you can find on YouTube. And they're basically guided body scans, or it's even yoga nidra is similar, or self-hypnosis is similar. The benefits, as I said earlier, are amazing for neuroplasticity, amazing for new learning, amazing for recharging, amazing for your sleep at night. So I'm not going to go too much more into it because I think I'm going to dedicate a whole podcast on it down the road because I keep learning so much more about it. It's something I've been doing for years. It's actually one of my favorite things to do. Just a suggestion always set an alarm because sometimes you actually can fall asleep. It's not the point to get the sleep, but you don't want to slip into a long nap. So set your alarm or timer. I actually usually aim for 15 to 20 minutes. All right. So cold exposure is the next thing. If you want to learn all about the benefits of cold exposure, then I encourage you to watch the National Geographic series Limitless with Chris Hemsworth. It is an amazing series. Watch all the episodes. There's only six of them. But there is one in cold exposure. I think it's episode three. But at any rate, there is a lot of research backing up the benefits. And of course, my good friend, Dr. Huberman, shares a lot about it too. And you might have heard of Wim Hof, who's also known as the Iceman. And if you look in Wikipedia, they give a really good short biography that he's a Dutch motivational speaker, an extreme athlete who's noted for his ability to withstand low temperatures. He previously held a Guinness World Record for swimming under ice and prolonged full body contact with ice and holds a record for a barefoot half marathon on ice and snow. And he attributes these feats to his Wim Hof method, which is a combination of frequent cold exposure, breathing techniques, and meditation. So he's also a huge cold exposure advocate. Now, I'm totally a wimp, which actually means, according to Dr. Huberman, the wimpier you are, the more your nervous system needs cold exposure. Okay, so he doesn't use those words exactly, but that is a gist. Now, the reason cold exposure is so good is because it automatically stresses the nervous system in a controlled way, and then we need to learn how to tolerate it. So it's kind of like resistance training. We need the resistance to get stronger. We are stressing the nervous system in a controlled way to get stronger, which instantly there is some breath work that also does the same thing. And there are benefits to actively and deliberately activating your system. Huberman recommends a protocol, which I've been trying out. And of course, I think the ideal is doing an ice bath, which I'm totally not there yet. So I do the light version, which is at the end of my shower, turning it down to as cold as I can tolerate it. That's what the recommendation is. It's recommended to do up to 11 minutes per week. Don't worry, it's not 11 minutes at a time. 11 minutes per week spread out over several times during the week. It's also best to be moving in the cold as opposed to like standing still and just bracing it. And you can practice doing some cognitive skills in the cold, like a math problem or repeating the alphabet backwards or rehearsing something that you're memorizing, like a poem. I actually will practice rehearsing one of my favorite poems that I used to practice with Josh at night, which is the poem Invictus. And I'm thinking of trying to memorize another one of my favorite poems called Ithaca in the Cold. Because remember, when we get in an activated state, that sympathetic system, which the cold water is putting us in, we lose access to our thinking skills. So when we try to tolerate the cold, we are trying to get back into that zone of resilience where we can access our thinking skills again. So we're practicing accessing those thinking skills while we are trying to transition to the zone of resilience. So my husband totally laughs at me, but I love trying out things like this. And as I said, I'm not great at it but it's the trying where you build the resilience. Now, the third thing for me is a bath at night. So out of the cold into the hot and like scalding hot. I love a hot bath. I have a very high tolerance for heat, not cold, but heat. When my boys were little, I would give them a bath and they were seriously the cutest. They would take baths together at night and play with their little Playmobil bath guys. And when they would get out of the water, they would have a line at their waist, and the lower part of their body would be red from sitting in the hot water for so long. It sounds really bad, but they loved the heat too. I totally wasn't torturing them, and they both continued to love the heat. But when my stepkids came along, I had to learn to pour cooler baths because they did not like the heat. And Rob just about dies with hot temperatures. And because he's had a heart attack too, he jokes that I'm trying to kill him with the absurd heat that I use. But I love my hot baths and I started taking them a lot more as my kids got older and I was less needed at night. And certainly now it's really part of my night routine. I head up to take a bath while Rob does his own night ritual of sitting and listening to music, which is totally a prime way that he widens his zone, releases his stress and anchors himself. Now, sometimes in the bath, I'll read. Sometimes I'll bring my computer. I'll watch a video. Sometimes I'll just listen to music that my husband is playing in the house. Sometimes I daydream or snooze. Sometimes I use candles. I usually almost always have bubble bath. I stock up every year at Christmas time with my kids. Know it's always a winter gift. And sometimes I use Epsom salts if I'm sore. It is a great way to wind down and prepare for sleep. And research actually shows that a warm bath or shower before bed can help a person fall asleep and improve sleep quality, even in the heat of the summer. And the best time to take one is about an hour or two before going to bed. Why? Well, we know that baths can be relaxing, but that actually is not the reason. Matthew Walker, who's a neuroscientist and sleep specialist at the University of California, Berkeley, says, and I quote, We know that your core body temperature needs to drop by about two to three degrees Fahrenheit to initiate good sleep and then maintain deep sleep. The way it works is this. For you to get your heat out of your core of your body, you actually need to release that core heat through the outer perimeter surfaces of your body, namely your hands and your feet. And this is why hot baths actually work. For the opposite reason most people think. You get into a hot bath, you get out, you think I'm nice and toasty, I get into bed and I fall asleep better because I'm warm. But the opposite is true. What happens with a bath is you actually bring all of the blood to the surface and your hands and your feet are wonderful radiators of that heat. So you are essentially like a snake charmer. You're charming the heat out of the core of your body to the surface of your body. Isn't that cool? So maybe you're going to want to introduce that into your routine. Now, the fourth thing on my list is music. This is a big one, as I mentioned, for my husband as well. Now, when I was going through my divorce, I had a client who actually made me a CD of music. It was filled with very energetic, kind of angry music. I actually took a marker and labeled it my angry music CD. Now, when Rob and I got married, he found it in the car and he laughed at the label, angry. I think it actually was angry divorce CD. And he laughed and he heard it and he agreed it was angry. All right. And the other day we were watching the third season of Dead to Me. And there's a scene where Christina Applegate is in the car with a friend who's very angry and frustrated. And she tells him that when she was super angry after her husband died, she liked to listen to music. And she played this really loud, aggressive music for him. She said it just made her feel better. So I guess I'm not the only one. Now, I also had a CD that I called sad and one called happy that my friend made me. Now, I don't have CDs anymore, but I have playlists. I have ones to pump me up. I have one called beautiful songs that one of my kids made. And every year I make a playlist for one of my best friends for her birthday. And she said she can always tell the kind of year I've had based on the playlist. I also have a playlist for when I do breath work, which is a whole other way to widen the zone in itself. But music to me is key. Music allows you to be safe and feel whatever you need to feel in whatever zone you are in. And depending on the music, it can help anchor you or it could help you downregulate or upregulate. It can energize or it can comfort. So I highly recommend creating different playlists for yourself that can match your moods and match where your nervous system is. Now, the fifth thing is a bit of a cheat because I'm lumping in a bunch of things. But that's a consistent morning routine. And by consistent, I usually try to do this four to five times per week. I admit that sometimes I fall off and I'm only able to do it twice a week. I do have a slightly different routine for the weekend, but that kind of works well for me and I do enjoy the variety. But my routine always includes some meditation or tapping then some type of movement, like I'll do high intensity training routines or yoga or Pilates or resistance training, then walking outside, getting that sunlight. And while I'm walking, I often will listen to podcasts, but sometimes I'll just put music on if I feel like I need it, or sometimes just silence if I want to think. I often start with a podcast or music and then stop it just to listen and think. I'll also try to do a small amount of reading. I usually do more reading later on in the day and some journaling or some type of thought download. I tend to do more journaling in the evening for a few minutes with more of a focus on gratitude or my gain journal prompts, which you can go back and check out my podcast on the gap in the gain journal prompts, where I talk about what I journal about. And then I follow up with some prayer and scripture. So it's a bit of everything for me and it's a great way to start my day. I often will review some of my goals, my mission statement, my vision statement, my code of honor. These are called the documents of intention. It's something that I also do with my clients. I have them pinned up in my office. So I may look over those. I'm kind of realigning my compass on a daily basis by creating this morning routine. Now, I just gave you a sample of what's in my routine. Obviously, when my kids were younger, my routine was way, way shorter. And that's okay. Just try to integrate a few things that get you started off on the right foot for your day. Now, the sixth one that helps me anchor and widen my zone, it may seem a bit weird to you, but Grey's Anatomy. This is a big safety anchor for me, a way of really rooting myself in my zone of resilience, or at least helping me get back there. Now, you've likely heard me say it before. It's my favorite show. I've never missed an episode. Like maybe I haven't watched it live, but I've seen them all. And the reason behind it, I think, is Grey's Anatomy started right as I was getting divorced. It was a rough time for me, and I love to curl up with a blanket and watch it. I love everything and anything medical. I love the romance. I love the music. Many of the songs that make my playlist are from Grey's Anatomy. I love the life lessons of all the voiceovers at the start and the finish. And I love how almost every time there's something to cry about. So it's a great release. And then shortly after I met Rob, he got me a Grey's Anatomy trivia game because he knew I loved the show. It was actually the first gift he ever gave me. Now, I've never been able to play it with anybody because nobody loves Grey's Anatomy as much as I do. But it became such an anchor for me that I've never given up watching the show. It still is an anchor. I look forward to curling up with my blankets. Blankets are also another thing in my environment that anchors and are signs of safety. I can't even tell you how many blankets we have, like at least two dozen in the house. And everyone uses blankets in our house. Even if you're a guest, you get a blanket if you want it. We will not force it on you, of course. But pretty much no one will watch a show without one or read a book or sit on the couch. So that's just a side note. Your environment can be part of your anchors and blankets do it for me and my family. But back to Grey's Anatomy. I still love it. I'll never give it up. Even though I know it has gone on for a long time. There's lots of unrealistic drama, like how many people have died or kissed or broken up. But I almost always get a good cry which is such a great release for my stress. Rob watches it with me, mostly. Sometimes it drives him a bit crazy, but he's a good sport about it. But it is my show. And lastly, social connection. Now we know that the zone of resilience is a zone of connection. So it makes sense that connecting is an important thing to do to stay anchored or rooted in that safe and stable place. So sharing with others. Now, that doesn't mean constant socializing, though. Maybe it is a phone call with my mom or a FaceTime call with one of my kids or texting with my kids or friends. When I was on the road and traveling for work, Rob and I would text during the day just to check in and say hi. We tend to share a lot about our work with each other. Now we both work from home, so we try to squeeze in like 15 minutes midday to have a bite to eat, to just connect with each other. Sometimes I'll do dinner with girlfriends or with couple friends. Sometimes I'll go walk with a girlfriend. We started playing pickleball with one of our couple's friends every week. And it's always so amazing to connect with my peers. I have some coaching peers who have become really close pals and are really great supports to me and I can support them. So, it's been a huge blessing of becoming a coach. This international network of people I've met and now love and admire and support and feel supported. And then, of course, I connect with my clients. Connection is key for me as it's such an important part of communication. Now, I obviously have professional boundaries, but to be honest, my style is much more of a connection model. I am me, I share. I have to regulate a lot to ensure I don't get compassion fatigue or burnout, and it's different with each client, but I feel very honored and privileged to have met so many different people from different walks of life that I can share with, support with, witness, and see. I've actually had, over the years, five clients who have passed away, most under very difficult circumstances while I was working with them, and this sounds super crazy, but I always think, about when I meet them in heaven again, because that's my belief, that I will feel good about meeting them, that I served them and gave my best to them. So the connection I make with my clients daily is a high priority. And then even connection with new people. I love connecting with podcast listeners or on Instagram or Facebook, connecting through emails or DMs. These new connections are so fun. Then, of course, connection with my dog. Pets are a very important part of our families and can have a big role in helping you stay regulated and connected. So if it's harder for you to connect with people or if loneliness is a factor, then animals can take on that role. They love you unconditionally. They're always happy to see you. There's no judgment. And then, of course, nature is a great way that you can get out and connect. And lastly, connection to my higher power, my source, my God, this is a fundamental piece of who I am. So that connection is a priority to me as well. Now, all that being said, are we connected? <laughs> because if we aren't, then please reach out. I'm at Leah Davidson Life Coaching on Instagram or Facebook, or you can just email me at Leah at Leah Davidson Life Coaching. So let's connect. And I genuinely mean that. So that is a sampling of what I do to stay in my zone and to grow my zone, to be anchored and rooted and to build and grow that resilience. There are many, many, many more things, little things, but I wanted to give you a sample. And hopefully what my sample does is give you some ideas of what you're already doing or what you can start doing. One of the most important things you can do for your nervous system is to establish safety, to create safety, to do things through your actions, your environment, the people that you surround yourself with. I encourage you to create a list, kind of like what I shared with you today. Create your zone of resilience list that you can refer to. You can practice, implement, immerse yourself in. Turn to when you feel a bit unshaken. Spend lots of time in this zone. The more you spend here, the more you'll be able to weather the storms of life. And if you really want to take the time to learn how to befriend your nervous system, grow resilience, inoculate yourself from stress and burnout, create more meaningful relationships, more purpose and joy in your life, then reach out and let's set up a call. Invest in yourself. Coaching is also a top way that I expand my zone, so I'm sure it would work for you too. Make yourself a beautiful week and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about managing stress, building resilience, and leading a more purposeful life, then make sure we're connected on Instagram and Facebook at Leah Davidson Life Coaching. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter at www.leahdavidsonlifecoaching.com forward slash newsletter. Looking forward to connecting.